I thought about this morning, since we're concluding the book of Romans, I thought about giving everybody a quiz today. Since we're right in the, the heat of school and beginning a new year. But I thought better of that. I thought instead we'd go ahead and dive in. There, there, there are a lot of, lot of really good things to talk about, to share, to digest from this text. And really we're, we're not going to spend much time at all on the, the, the first part of the text, 21, 22, 23, 24, these names. Timothy, who was a fellow worker. Lucius, Jason, Sosipater. These are countrymen of Paul. We saw earlier on in Romans that Paul was calling out names of people there in the church at Rome to whom he would desire to greet. And now here we see these names, eight names, those who are with Paul as he's writing from Corinth. And these names that he brings out, I, Tertius, who wrote the epistle, greet you. Gaius, who was Paul's host and the host of the entire church. Very hospitable fellow, I imagine Gaius was. Erastus, the treasurer of the city. And Quartus, a brother. You might think that's a very general way to describe Quartus. But his name is here for a reason. Something about Quartus, the fact that he's a brother in the Lord. Quartus, he's there. He too greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And once again we see amen. That's not the final amen in the letter. This morning I would like to really focus our attention on 25, 26, 27. In fact, I believe that a message in and of itself could be preached in 25. This morning, I've subtitled or labeled just for my own benefit as I was working through the text. A working title. This God I serve is able. This God I serve is able. And I believe Paul ends this letter giving praise to God, turning the attention to God through Jesus Christ. This God I serve. This God who is able. Right out of the gate. Now to Him who is able. See, there needs to be a focus right here before we go further into 25. On looking at who God is. Is this a God that can be trusted? And this morning for you individually, do you have a right understanding of God's identity. What does the Bible say about God and about His ability, about His power? That word able has in mind of power. 
to him who is able, to him who is of power. Now, Paul knew a little bit about this God. You might recall his own testimony, his own story, if you will, in Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus. And his life changes, doesn't it? What a testimony. Is God able? I believe the Apostle Paul, and, and I do hope if you've been here for the entirety or most of what we've covered in the book of Romans, I do believe you'll be able to say the same thing, that Paul, yes, Paul is declaring with great certainty, God is able. What about your own story? What about your testimony? What does your life say about this great God that we serve? Then you could look at the testimony of Scripture itself. No way could we do an exhaustive on this, but we can do a little snapshot. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God who is able is our creator. A little bit later in Genesis, chapter 6, verse 7. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. This God that is able is also a God of wrath, church. Or how about in Exodus chapter 14, 30 and 31? So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. This God that we serve, this God who is able, rescues, saves. Or how about the familiar story in Samuel 17? 45 and 46, David said to the Philistine, you come with me with, with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. This God who is able is a deliverer. Or what about Psalm 115? I delighted in Psalm 115 this week. Just read the first three verses. We'll come back and read a few more in a moment. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your mercy. Because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does Whatever he pleases. See, this God who is able, this God who is of power, is sovereign. Or what about the story in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38, where we see Christ coming down to earth. This God who is able sends his son in the flesh. 
to earth. Or what about in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost? This God who is able sends now in conjunction with Christ sends the Holy Spirit. Or what about 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 where it says all scripture has been given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21 says, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This God who is able has given to us and has this, his own God-breathed word. That's just a sampling of the greatness of our God. You see, this God who is able... The text says, now to him who is able to establish you. To establish you. Remember, he's writing this to the the church at Rome. This is intended for a church. Before we can see or, or wrap our arms around, our brain around God establishing you. Isn't it important that we first take a step back and understand who God is? See, when we look at this God who is able to establish you, and you ask the question, what does it mean for God to establish you? What does it mean? That word in and of itself is an important word. It's important for us to understand here in the text. It has the idea of to make stable, to place firmly, to set fast, to strengthen, to make firm. I got to thinking about how sometimes I, you know, I find a table at the coffee shop. And you ever sat at a table and you're, you know, you may have your laptop with you and you're, all of a sudden you start to lean on the table and and it goes one side or the other. You ever, anybody else? Yeah. And, it, and it's a table you don't really care to sit at. It's not stable. You don't want it to fall and collapse. With things that you have on top of it. It's not steady. You see, the God that we serve, this God who is a great God, He's able to establish you. He's able to strengthen you, to make you firm in the faith in which you stand. Paul is concluding this letter with an encouragement to the church at Rome. For all of those wavering, for all of those teetering, wondering about their faith, God is able to establish you, Paul says. You know, I I read that, and I read that, and I read that, and I... I got to wondering about those of you who would be occupying a chair today. Perhaps some of you are wavering in the faith. Questioning your status with the Lord. God is able to establish you too. And church, this is some of the best news in the text today. This is some of the best news in the text. 
See, we need to go back and, and, and you need to ask yourself, what, what, is, what is my view of God? That's why we started with who God is. Is it, is it in alignment, this view of yours of God, is it in alignment with who God is according to the scriptures? Or have you perhaps redefined or condensed God into a box of your own making? You see, God is able. On your own, you're not able. But God is able. See, His power is such that He is able to establish you, to settle you, to strengthen you, to place you on firm ground of understanding that you belong to Him and that you're His precious child whom He loves dearly. Now, just for a moment, be ready to turn some pages here this morning. We're going to turn to a few different places. So many wonderful passages that really support and uphold the things we're talking about here from Romans. But, but Jude, we don't go there too often, but look at Jude 24 and 25. By the way, there's only one chapter, so we just call out the verses, okay? Jude 24 and 25. A doxology, right at the end. Now to him who is able, you might underline this, if you write in your, your Bible, him who is able, there's a familiar phrase, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You see, this God is able to keep you from stumbling. There is security in God. Not only that, it says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence. And you're going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't know my story. I'm anything but faultless. And you're right. But through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, you stand faultless before God the Father. And it's not done. See, Jude goes on. Present faultless, what's it say? Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. And you might be thinking, I just don't feel like I got a whole lot of joy. My days go by and I just don't feel very joyful. Well, you know where the joy comes from? The joy comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in you. Isn't it interesting? That you're going to stand faultless. That this God is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you secure. That you're going to stand faultless before the throne. That's not of your own doing. That's through Christ in his perfect righteousness. And that joy that you're going to have as you stand faultless before him, who's that come from? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that neat how God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit minister to you and to me? It's a great passage. Or how about this one? Turn to Hebrews. Chapter 7. I'll start in 23. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, these human priests, they were dying. They, didn't, they weren't able to continue because they were dying. But he, our high priest, our great high priest, Christ, because he continues forever, 
has an unchangeable priesthood. Look at 25. Therefore, he is also able to save. He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save forever. He's able to save completely. Those who come to him, this is interesting the way the Hebrew writer says this, those who come to God through him. Church, do you know that the only way you come to God is through Jesus Christ? That's the only way. The Hebrew writer supports that very idea. Or what about, go backwards in Hebrews to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look at 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able, there it is, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You see, you might be sitting here thinking, no one's ever gone through this before. You may feel like you're on an island. No, no, no. Christ came, one of the reasons he came, he himself suffered. He himself was tested. But it says he, he was able, he's able to aid those who now are tempted. He's gone through some of those very same things and he is able to aid you. That's one of his ministries. This God who is able is able to aid you. Oh, what about 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy, you might have thought of that one first. That might have been the first one you, you thought of. Verse 12, chapter 1. For this reason I also suffer these things, Paul writes. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able, there it is, he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You see, I, I love this because it's certainty I know whom I have believed. There's certainty with who God is persuades me that God then is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day, capital D. Perhaps you were thinking of Ephesians 3. Wonderful passage in Ephesians 3. 20 and 21. Now to him who is able. There it is. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory. Here's an interesting phrase. In the church. To him be glory in the church. By whom? By Christ Jesus. To all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. You see, God is not confined to human parameters for how to respond. I love the phrase. Exceedingly, abundantly, above. Exceedingly, abundantly, above. All we ask or think. That's the God that we serve. He's able to do. Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you and I might ask or think.
So what's the means? What's the means by which God is able to establish you? Well, there are three particular clauses here. This, this, there's some, some difficulty in trying to discern uh, the specific grammar here. Uh, as you read through the text, you, you notice this is quite a long continuation, right? So, so try to stick with me here as I, I, I do my best here to, to unravel some of this to give some understanding. And we'll take, we'll take the first two together. They're really linked together in many ways. The means by which God is able to establish you. First of all, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. According to my gospel. Now, some of you, when you read that, perhaps you're thinking, Paul, that sounds so arrogant. According to my gospel. My gospel. Since when is it his gospel? Well, if you go back to the beginning, and by the way, this, these last few verses are just a wonderful closure bookends, if you will, to the beginning. If you read the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 1, let's just go backwards to Romans 1 verse 1 because here it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That was the very thing Paul was separated to. The gospel. Okay? The gospel. So, to him who is able to establish you according to to my gospel. Or how about Galatians 1? In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, Paul says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then there's the passage in Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the gospel seems to have much to do with the cross of Christ, doesn't it? Paul was concerned here that... You know, I, not with persuasive words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. In addition to the gospel, Paul gives a closely connected means by which God is able to establish you. He goes on, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps your translation says the proclamation. The heralding of Christ. And you know, as I speak today, there are many church doors open. Many are listening to a message of some kind. Lord willing, the message is filled with truth. Springing from the word of truth. And you know, it, it may seem odd, perhaps, that this even needs to be voiced. But God establishes his people through the proclamation message of Jesus Christ. That, that's according to what we're reading here. That's one of the ways he does that. The preached word opens the door to the church. To a priority given of the preached word. You see, God is able 
to establish you by means of his preached word. In chapter 1 of Corinthians, verse 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God, through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. This is God's plan. Or or Corinthians in chapter later, chapter 2, listen to this in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, In my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God. Or we go back to Romans. Turn backwards just a bit. Romans chapter 10. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 17, so then faith comes by what? Comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, there's a place for the herald. There's a place for the proclaimer. And yet each time the preacher stands, he must stand with fear and trembling, knowing not only is he being a spokesperson for the Lord, but there are real lives at stake that this preached word has power to save. This preached word is what transforms lives. This preached word is a means by which God is able to establish his people, to assure them of truth, to solidify who it is that they belong to, being in Christ Jesus. At the end of that wonderful chapter in Corinthians 15, there in the midst, verse 14 and verse 20, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also futile. It's empty. You're still in your sins. The good news is in verse 20 of chapter 15, Paul says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. He wants to assure them that he has risen from the dead. Praise God. You see, if the preached word is a means by which God uses, if, if he, it's a means... God uses to establish you in the faith. Think about this for just a moment. It stands to reason that your listening becomes key. We're going to talk about how to listen to a message next month. For now, I just put it forward. If the preached word is a means God uses to establish you in the faith, your listening becomes very important. And I'll back up before you're listening. Even before you're listening, are you praying to God that he might teach you what you need to hear? Some of you are very diligent to pray for me or or for Kevin or Ralph, whomever is up here speaking. And I thank you for that. I'm in need of that. I would also encourage you to be in prayer for your own self as to what It is God would want to teach you 
Are you prayerfully considering your role here, asking of the Holy Spirit what He might teach you through His preached Word? You know, I got to thinking about an example in the Old Testament. Familiar story. Turn to or excuse me, First Kings, chapter eighteen, in verse twenty-one. They they gather all the children of Israel and the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. Elijah came to all the people in twenty-one. Said, "How long will you falter between two opinions?" How long? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The people answered not a word. And we know the rest of the story, probably. If you go to verse 36. Just before Elijah calls upon the Lord. Seemingly is a, is a, is a prayer here. 36. Came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice... That Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, this God who's shown himself in history, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I love the priority in the text. Elijah is very specific about calling out, you are God. I'm your servant. Let it be evident, God, that these things are being done today according to your word. Not according to something that I think might be a good idea. Hear me, Lord, he says. Why? Why is he calling on God to hear him? That this people may know that you are the Lord God. And that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And you know, I got to thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe Elijah didn't preach what we would call a sermon on that day. Maybe he didn't preach a sermon on that day. But I believe that, that his words capture the heart of a preacher of the gospel. Isn't the preacher to drive a stake of truth in the ground where the scripture itself drives those stakes into the ground? And isn't one of those stakes, church, a desire for the people to know? A desire for the people to know without a doubt, to know with great certainty that God is able, that He is the Lord. Some of you have been faltering. Some of you have been wavering between two opinions. How long are you going to continue to do so? If the Lord is God, follow Him. 
Maybe in your instance it's not Baal. Perhaps it's some other idol, some other God, some other thing you're holding on to. That's you. I go back to Psalm 15 and I pick up in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The futility of idols. The futility of holding on to a God who is not going to answer, as we see in the story of Elijah. Hour after hour after hour went by, and they're calling upon this God. Doesn't answer. Stop faltering. Stop wavering. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 6 and Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot. Paul concludes Romans 16 with a declaration. This God I serve is able to establish you. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to give you aid. He's able to guard you. And today, if you hear nothing else, I pray you would hear the truth of his word and get off the fence. If you're straddling the fence, some of you maybe have climbed a fence before. Maybe you found out at the top it wasn't a good idea. It's not comfortable straddling the fence. You're not intended to straddle the fence. Even in Revelation, he's speaking to the church. Lukewarm. Spit you out of my mouth. Hot or cold. Get off the fence. See, I, I, my, my hope and my prayer is that the wavering would be, would be demolished by the, the power of God. And, and I pray that and I recognize there are some here today, perhaps, that are dealing with, with fear, dealing with uh, timidity. And my hope and prayer is that, that any of that timidity, any of that fear that you might have today would just be drenched in the downpour of God's mercy and truth. And we want you to know God is able. God is able. He is of power to establish you. Now, God is able to establish you by the means of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on and he gives yet another means by which God is able to establish you. The text says, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. That's a mouthful right there. What is this mystery of which Paul speaks? Well, turn with me again. Go to Ephesians and just listen. Chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, 
How that by revelation, he made known to me the mystery. There it is. By revelation. Remember earlier in Galatians, he said, I didn't get this from a man. I wasn't taught this from a man. But Christ himself revealed this to me. Here it is. How that by revelation, he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. All right. He wrote about that, by the way, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Go back chapter 3. Okay, let's pick it up at verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known. There it is, that kept hidden, right? It's kept silent. To the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Here's verse 6. Key verse. Asterisk right here. Verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. Through what? Through the gospel. That's a loaded verse. And that's wonderful news. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul didn't manufacture this. It was given to him by the power working in him, the Holy Spirit. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles. What's he going to preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1. You want to know what those unsearchable riches are? Read Ephesians 1. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, this God who alone is wise, it might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom... We have boldness and access with confidence by what means? Through faith in him. Let me give you one other small sampling from Colossians. We talk about this mystery. Just the end of chapter 1. This mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, that's the saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Or should I say, whom? Christ in you. The hope of glory. See, for a time, this mystery had been kept silent, been hidden. But now it's made manifest, it's evident, it's visible. And by the prophetic scriptures made known to the nations. Now, church, how often, as we've gone through the book of Romans, how often has Paul made reference to the Old Testament scriptures? Quite often. In fact, one number that, that came across on some 74 different occasions. Paul makes reference back to the Old Testament scriptures, either directly quoting or making reference to the Old Testament scriptures. What, what then do you make of that? Here's what I make of it. The conclusion of the matter, I believe, is that the prophetic scriptures are significant. They're very important. They matter greatly. In fact, you go back to Romans, the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, that Paul called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised... 
God promised. He promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's interesting how he begins the letter and he ends the letter and there's some similar things here that he's kind of bookending is this letter. You know, I read these last few verses of Romans and I'm, I'm reminded once again of the recurring themes throughout these 16 chapters. The power of the gospel, the preached word to save those who believe, the mystery revealed of Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body in Christ Jesus. This one gospel, Romans 2 verse 30 says, that there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. One God, one gospel. And by means of the prophetic scriptures, the mystery is made known to all nations, to the Gentiles. And I was reminded back in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, that, that time when Peter is in Cornelius' house, in verse 43, listen to what he says as he's, as he's teaching and preaching. Peter says, To him, all the prophets witness, to Christ, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes... Notice, whoever, whoever believes in him will receive remission, forgiveness of sins. And then we can go just flip a few pages in Acts 15, that council of Jerusalem. You remember the story? Let me read a few words. Acts 15, look at Acts 15, verse 7. And when there had been so much dispute, there's a dispute going on, and Peter gets up and does what he does very well, what he'd been gifted to do, speak. And specifically speaking the name, and for the name of Christ. He stands up and he says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. The Bible elsewhere says that you are saved by what? By grace, through faith, and that not of your own. It's a gift. All the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they'd become silent, James answered. Here's what James says. Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Hear the reference again to the prophets. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. Verse 17. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. You see, God is able to establish you, Paul writes. According to the revelation of the mystery, once kept silent, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. The church at Rome was made up of Gentiles and Jews. The manifestation of the mystery, the making known of this mystery to the nations by way of the prophetic scriptures. This would have been very good news for those who were deemed wild olive branches. You might remember that. Back when we were talking in Romans chapter 9, 
Do you know this mystery that's been made known? I was reminded of Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 14 through 16. For he himself, Christ that is, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh. How did he abolish? In his flesh. The enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through what means? Through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. Verse 18, for through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We both have access. Now, by what means are the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations? The end of 26 says, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. According to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. See, the prophetic scriptures were made known to all nations according to the commandment, the mandate of the everlasting God, the eternal God.